Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 4, Episode 1 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. The idea of values is sort of a an interesting one because there's the getting the values concept with your head. Mm. And a lot of times people want like, give me the list of values again. Where's the 21 or 86 or 75 list? And then there's understanding values from the space of the heart or even the back of the heart, like mm. deep in there, heart at the back of the heart. What are my values? And when we get there, I often find that clients are like, oh, yeah, that's a knowing that I've had since I was five. So that's where I feel like act sometimes that initial headiness of it all can can actually derail us from something that's quite simple. Hey, supers, thanks for tuning in. For the first episode of the season, I'm delighted to share part one of my chat with Dr. Diana Hill, clinical psychologist, act expert, podcast legend, and author. People Soup is an award-winning podcast where we share evidence-based behavioral science in a way that's practical, accessible, and fun to nourish your mind to flourish at work. We cover loads more in our chat, including Diana's career pathway, the impact of the pandemic for people at work, sleep hygiene, completing our day at work, and hermit crabs. Diana also makes a song choice, relating it to something many of us will have gained a fresh awareness of during the pandemic. And over to the news desk. As part of season four, I'll shortly be inviting you to the movies. There'll be more news soon, but I'm very proud to let you all know that People Soup will be sponsoring a screening of the documentary Work Songs by filmmaker Mark Street in collaboration with Argo Pictures. Mark Street is an independent filmmaker based in Brooklyn, New York, and Work Songs was finished months before the pandemic hit. The film examines how workers from all walks of life find meaning in their jobs. It's a kaleidoscopic portrait of the United States at work, interviews with cab drivers, longshore women, a farmer, a barista, and others discuss threats from automation, the gig economy, and the decline of the unions. Each section reveals a different aspect of our evolving relationship to labour and allows the viewer to reflect on their own negotiation of economic concerns, satisfaction, and a larger social good. I found the film to be absolutely captivating, so I wanted to share it with you in a special People Soup screening. More details will follow very soon, but once you've had a chance to bag your free ticket and view the documentary, you'll also be able to send me questions for the director, Mark Street, as he'll be a future guest on the show. If you do enjoy the podcast, I'd love it if you would subscribe, follow, rate and review it, whatever platform you're on. It helps us amplify our voice and reach more people with stuff that could well be useful. If there's an episode you particularly like, why not drop some change into our virtual tip jar? Every three pounds is most gratefully received and you can find the jar over at ko-fi.com slash peoplesoup. And a big shout out to Fiona Murray, our most recent sponsor who did just that. Thanks so much for all your support and words of encouragement, Fiona. They are very much appreciated. For now, get a brew on and have a listen to part one of my conversation with Dr. Diana Hill. Dr. Diana Hill, very warm welcome to People Soup. Happy to be here. Well, I'm delighted to see you, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. 
Now, Diana, you might be aware I have a research department, so they've been compiling some facts about you. So if I could present them to you and we'll see how, how they do. They're not always 100% right. So fingers crossed. Wonderful. So it says here, Dr. Diana Hill, clinical psychologist who uses the science of acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT to help her clients get unstuck so they can live their lives with vitality and purpose. Accurate, yeah. Good. You are an author, a co-author of a new book called the ACT Daily Journal, Get Unstuck and Live Fully with Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, which you wrote alongside Dr. Debbie Sorensen. Correct. And I am a bit giddy. Is that a, a word you recognize, giddy? Yes, we oh, use good. that in the US, yes. Because <laughs> we just had another word which we, we didn't recognize. What was that? Daft. 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 We do not use that word in the US. No, I, I had to have you translate. Maybe we could start a little trend. Daft. Yes, daft. I think, I think it's probably quite a northern word. I'm not sure. Maybe the, maybe the pea supers will tell me. <laughs> but I am a bit giddy because you're also a legend of podcasting. You are one of the co-hosts of the Psychologists of the Clock podcast, and I am a major fanboy. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> because you interviewed leaders in the field of psychology, mindfulness, and well-being. And now it's kind of one of those situations where the tables are turned, you're in the hot seat. How does it feel? It's actually way more comfortable for me to be in the hot seat than to interview. I, It's quite nerve wracking for me to interview folks that I admire so much and that I look up to and have really shaped my life in such profound personal and clinical ways. So this is actually a little bit more comfortable for me, which is interesting because I don't know if that's the case for everybody. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you. I've got some more research here. It says you are a regular teacher for the Mindful Hearts program and also for Insights LA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I teach with, they're both uh, organizations that have a spirituality focus to them. And I think really at the intersection of psychology and spirituality. And I teach a regular Tuesday evening uh, I guess you'd call it a class, but we, I do, I give a talk, we do some movement and we also do a meditation together and they're usually around psychological flexibility in some way or form. So it's a really creative outlet for me. And then this summer I'm doing a, a whole year or not this summer, this year, I'm doing a whole year long teaching through Inside LA, which is a program that started by Judy Goodman and, uh, Jack Cornfield. And through Inside LA, I'm going through the core processes of ACT and teaching how to use them in your daily life. Wonderful. So all your career and your endeavors find their way back to ACT and psychological flexibility. Would that be fair to say? I think that that's one part of me, but a part that doesn't show up as much on the podcast is the spiritual side, my background in yoga, and my real strong interest in the intersection between health, physical health and psychological health. Mm. And so I'm sitting more at that intersection these days of seeing it as sort of a whole. The act in psychological flexibility is, is one uh, part of my training, my background and experience and evidence-based approaches to living well. But I think that I move a little bit more fluidly now between that and also looking at movement and embodiment as well as spiritual practices as part of um, a full and vibrant life. 
Wow, thank you. And yeah. I've got a few more points to cover. And, and incidentally, having read the ACT Daily Journal and appreciated your interviews and your social media content, I know most wholeheartedly that you have a knack for unpacking this complex science and making it applicable to daily life, both in work, in parenting, in relationships, and in health. So big kudos to you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been fun. I'm really new to social media. I've only been on it for about four months, and I was incredibly resistant for years and years and years to, to do social media, uh, mainly because I saw some of the dark sides of it. Mm. And now that the book is coming out and also I'm looking at different avenues to offer teachings, it's really been fun to be creative and, and look at ways to offer skills and ideas that maybe be another place for people to land in social media that doesn't make them feel bad about themselves or compare themselves, but actually gives them inspiration and hope and skills to use in their daily life. So it's been actually a fun endeavor and a little bit of psychological flexibility on my part to get out of the story that I was in, that this is like evil, never go there and enter into it from a, a different stance and different perspective. Very nice. Well, your Instagram is is great. I love it. So well done. Yeah, I wouldn't right. know you'd just been doing it for that short amount of time. Yeah, yeah. A couple more things to cover. It says here, Diana did her undergrad work at the University of California in Santa Barbara, majoring in biopsychology, followed mm -hmm. by a PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Colorado in Boulder, where you researched mindfulness and acceptance-based approaches for eating disorders. Yes, absolutely. Now, my forensic research department also uncovered one other thing. They said, and sometimes they find stuff that's quite unusual, but they've told me that you're in secret talks, which excites me as it relates to food. They've said you're going to start producing your own brand of homemade salsa. <laughs> and it's made in an authentic way in a molcajete, with a oh. secret blend of peppers, tomatoes, onions, garlic, and cilantro, or for our UK listeners, coriander. And I'm not sure whether you can say whether this is true or untrue, but I'm really excited by the thought of this handmade, homemade salsa. Yes. Well, I think you are in onto something because a, sort of a secret of mine, or maybe it's not a secret, is that I love to make things and everything. My sister jokes that if I could make water, I would <laughs> because everything is I, I really enjoy um, practices that slow me down because I tend to run at a pretty quick pace and mm. things like cooking and gardening and spending time with my family helps me slow down to more of like a natural rhythm and is a counter for uh, a lot of the doing that I do. Mm. So part of that is a mocajete and it also just connects to some of my roots. My mom was born in Dominican Republic and grew up in Peru. And so I was really influenced by um, Central and Southern American cultures growing up. And so when I'm out there grinding salsa, it makes kind of connects me to her and also pass on some of um, those traditions uh, to my kids. Oh, how beautiful. Well, yeah. one day I look forward to tasting that. Yes. So I've had a go at talking a little bit about your career, just the just the, the bare bones, really. But I'd love it if you'd expand on the evolution of your career, Diana, maybe reflecting on some of those significant moments for you. Sure. Yeah, you know, I think that anyone probably that tells their life story in their 40s 
they'll find that it's usually pretty twisty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not a straight path, even though you think in your 20s, you think it's going to be one. Uh, and so for me, even just going back to biopsychology major at UCSB, I, I wanted to be a psychiatrist and uh, made the decision to move into psychology. I was, I was pre-med and all prepared to go that direction, but um, was really influenced at that time by Thich Nhat Hanh and by um, yoga and meditation and ended up traveling and spending some time with Thich Nhat Hanh and studying with him in Plum Village and came back from that as well as just sort of realizing that I'm interested in people and spending time with people and that psychiatry at that time didn't really allow for a lot of that. So kept my my fascination for biology and neuroscience in my back pocket, but then ended up going to University of Colorado at Boulder to study with Linda Craighead, who was specializing in appetite awareness for eating disorders at that time. And I loved how she integrated interoceptive awareness and paying attention to your hunger and fullness to guide your eating in combination with cognitive behavioral and more evidence-based approaches to eating disorders. So she was a really good fit for me and, and I learned a lot from her. But even in graduate school, I, I pivoted, as Steve Hayes would say, pivoted again. So it's been a lot of different twists and turns. I and mean, I can tell you about that and how I found my way to act if you want as well. Oh, I'd, I'd love to hear about how you how you came across ACT. Yes, please. Yeah. So I was actually, I ended up studying DBT in graduate school and researching that. And at the time, ACT wasn't really as big as it is now when I talk with graduate students who are who are studying, uh, at least here in the US, it's very much part of their core curriculum for a lot of graduate students. But at the time, mindfulness was just sort of starting to get on board and DBT was really in its early stages only being used for uh, borderline personality disorder mainly. And I, I wanted to learn how to integrate what I was learning with about cognitive behavioral approaches with what I knew about some of my own spiritual path and my own background in, in mindfulness and yoga. And actually, I ended up withdrawing from graduate school my second year because I had found myself out of alignment with my own values in graduate school. And part of my withdrawing was to go study yoga. And while I was studying yoga at the El Dorado Mountain Yoga Ashram in Boulder, I was very lucky that I went to a graduate school that's also like a spiritual mecca of the mm. world, Boulder, Colorado. But while I was there, I got really clear that I wanted to take a more integrative approach to working with eating disorders. And so I came back and ended up doing my PhD in combination with Deborah Safer at Stanford. And Deborah at the time was a psychiatrist that was really only one of the very few that were doing anything. She was working with binge eating disorder with DBT. And so that's how I got into sort of more of this evidence-based slash incorporates some of these Eastern principles world. And I did a treatment outcome study with her and with Linda. But along the way, I still hadn't quite found, I was actually just talking with Yael Shambran, who's my co-host on Psychologist Off the Clock, just right before we came on and we were just chatting. And I was talking about how I got to this point with DBT where everything felt like handouts and it felt very so structured mm. and that I needed, I just need a lot of room. I need space to express myself and I love the roots of evidence-based approaches, but I also like the freedom to be able to move within them. And along the way, Kelly Wilson 
came to Denver and he did this really small little intimate, I guess it was a seminar or a workshop for just a handful of graduate students. I think that it was DU and CU coming together. And I remember so well that I was one, very confused by the hexaflex that he was drawing. <laughs> I was like, this is, this is confusing. And I think a lot of people that see the hexaflex or the psychological flexibility model at the first, they just feel overwhelmed because there's so many processes and different new words that are really just made up words like cognitive diffusion mm -hmm. is not a real word. Uh, but I remember that being confused. But then I, what I remember more was the, the feeling state of really belonging when he shared about his own personal experience with uh, addiction, his loss that he's had, and, and anyone that's known and been to Kelly work Wilson workshop, I think they've all had that moment where they find themselves just crying and relating and <laughs> yeah, Definitely. hands up from Ross. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I felt that and but to feel that as a graduate student, when you're in a super highly academic striving community was just a real shift for me because I realized that I don't have to keep these things separate. That I had had my own recovery from an eating disorder. I had gone to study eating disorders, but I didn't tell anyone about it. Five years I'm in a program studying eating disorders and no one there knows mm -hmm. that I had recovered from an eating disorder, right? And it was at that time that I really was able to step more into my full being and ACT has space for that. And I think that the leaders in the field of ACT have really modeled that of, we are not perfect, we are on the path with you or we're walking right alongside you. And so it shifted not only how I felt about myself and the work that I was doing, but also my work with clients. And I really felt a, a significant um, shift in my clinical work as well in terms of outcomes and also the therapeutic alliance and something that I could get more behind that that wasn't quite as sterile mm. as some of the approaches that I was taking before. So that was my act shift. And, and then I kind of caught the bug like many people catch and it's evolved over time. I mean, sometimes I think I'm like a hermit crab that I just I fill up this shell and then I go and find another one that's a little bit bigger and a little roomier and, you know, and just sort of the willingness to be flexible and change and in perspectives and just learning as I grow uh, and certainly learned a lot from the individuals that I've interviewed at Sound mm. Psychology Left the Clock as well. I love that description of the hermit crab. I think you posted about that on Instagram recently. I might have. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of dig hermit crabs right now. I'm, I'm into them. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I love that idea that you're constantly evolving as someone who uses ACT in, in various different ways, and you've made it your own as well. I, that's what I love about that you can blend it mm -hmm. with you as a, your experience as a human to, to hopefully engage with other humans. Yeah. How do you make it your own, Ross? I try and give examples from, from my life try and give current and ongoing examples to show that we're all experiencing this together and how I've applied it and trying to model that vulnerability and openness and showing how I can use these techniques to maybe be the person I'd like to be just a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's mainly by disclosure and finding ways to make it accessible. That's something I get quite intense about sometimes. How can we explain the concept of values to someone who maybe doesn't really 
get what we're talking about? How can we make that accessible? Yeah. So I'm constantly thinking of different ways and using perhaps more visual ways to do it or experiential ways. The idea of values is sort of a an interesting one because there's the getting the values concept with your head. Mm. And a lot of times people want like, give me the list of values again. Where's the 21 or 86 or 75 list? And then there's understanding values from the space of the heart or even the back of the heart, like mm. deep in there, heart at the back of the heart. What are my values? And when we get there, I often find that clients are like, oh, yeah, that's a knowing that I've had since I was five. And for me, when I when I came to act, it was sort of that that knowing that I met Kelly Wilson with wasn't something that it was new. It wasn't like he gave me a fresh, brand new, fancy thing. It was that he opened the door to something that was actually quite old. And it was those values that I had been actually shifting and adjusting my life around and and making choices around, even though I didn't have words for it. So sometimes act is like a way of it's a model, a conceptual model for understanding something that you maybe already know. A lot of people already know that to live a meaningful life involves discomfort because mm. they've done it, because they've had those experiences where they had to step through something that was really uncomfortable or be in something that was really uncomfortable. If you've been in a relationship with anyone, you know that, right? Intimacy is incredibly uncomfortable and it's worth something to you. So that's where I feel like act sometimes that initial headiness of it all can can actually derail us from something that's quite simple. Oh, I just I just love to hear you talk about this, Diana, because my work is in the workplace. I, I mm -hmm. work with individuals and groups in workplaces. Yeah. And I think the workplace is a key arena for us to share this behavioral science to support people. It's an ideal way to have a, a kind of captive audience that, that and organizations are getting more and more interested in well-being yeah. and goodness. Yeah. And the nature of the workplace, which is kind of interesting, is that I think traditionally for so many years, we've tried to compartmentalize it. But something that what COVID did, which is one of the, as, as horrific as COVID has been, it also has offered a lots of opportunities just to completely dismantle some stuff. And what it's partly dismantled is that the workplace is separate from you or mm. your home life or because it, it how we are in our lives impacts how we are at work and how we are at work impacts how we are in the rest of our life. And they're deeply interconnected. And the same behavioral patterns of emotional avoidance that you're doing in your relationship with your husband or wife or friends, you're going to do those at work, at work with your boss. And, and, and so being able to see that these processes of psychological flexibility, once you start to try them on and live them out, it applies to your parenting, it applies to your workplace, it applies to your relationship with your body and movement, right? And that they're all much more interconnected than especially in the West, we, we want to we believe. Because forever, if you look at indigenous cultures, work was not separate from family. Work was not separate from how, you know, your day or from movement or from curiosity. But we, in, in the West, as we do with many, many different things, we try and silo 
our lives off, it's just as we also silo ourselves off. So to be more authentic in the workplace completely brings a greater sense of satisfaction to your work and an ability to connect with that back of the heart space that then can motivate and, and promote greater performance at work, but also just greater life satisfaction in general and relationships. Mm. Yeah. And I've always just firmly believed that I've been coaching for many years. Sometimes people will say, oh, do you think the same thing might be showing up in in my life, am I allowed to talk about stuff outside of work? I'm like, of course you are. You're a whole human being. There yeah. might be areas we go to that I feel I may refer you on for a particular support on a particular issue where I don't feel I am equipped to do that. But yes, of course, we need to talk about you as a whole person because the patterns you reflect at work will reflect in other areas of your life. Yes, it's the processes. Yeah, and really. I think... I yeah. think we've had that collision over the, over the pandemic, and and I think a lot of people have found that collision quite difficult in in the in the fact that they're maybe sitting at their kitchen table working, in the midst of a family, whilst homeschooling, whilst trying to go on endless Zoom calls, yeah. and and finding that disconnecting from work to be to be an issue, yes. because what was previously separate has now kind of collided in a really haphazard way. Yeah. So it's not either or. It's not that all of a sudden our work should just be like, you know, happening in the middle of the night. And I certainly actually struggled with that during the pandemic. I was actually preparing for an interview with Rafael Paleo, who's a sleep specialist. And if you if you do a little more research on me, Ross, because you're or your team, not you, your team uh, does a little bit more right. research well on done. me, you'll start to see that pretty much every interview that I've done is probably related to something that's happening in my own life. And then I want to go talk to the expert on it <laughs> to help me out. <laughs> nice. I figure if I'm struggling with it, someone else is probably too, right? So I was having insomnia during the pandemic. I don't know if anyone else experienced that insomnia during the pandemic. I mean, possibly. <laughs> Especially if you were in the US during the election during the pandemic, a little bit of insomnia happening. Um, and you're a parent. Uh, but what what I what I did is I talked to Dr. Dr. Rafael Paleo about it, and he gave me this really simple tool that I use every night now, uh, which was basically you need to have a point when your day is done because the nature and this is really similar to how uh, anxiety works or other phenomena work in humans, which is you, the more that you try and not be anxious, the more you're going to be anxious, right? The more that you try and fall asleep, the less likely you're going to fall asleep. And in order for your body to fall asleep, it needs, it needs a couple of things. It needs to feel safe because evolutionarily we won't fall asleep if we're, if we're not safe. It's one of the most vulnerable positions that we can be in as animals, right? Mm. And two, it needs to not have something to do. Because unfinished, when, when your mind has unfinished business or is working on something, it's going to keep on working on it. And so it'll wake you up in two hours and say, oh, yeah, remember you didn't edit that part of the podcast, Diane, or you didn't. So he gave me this, uh, this, this tool, which is deciding at a point when your day is done and that you, you are done with work. And at that point in time, you, you get out and it's not based on how many tasks you completed. It's on time. Mm -hmm. And you get out a journal and you write down, here are the tasks that remain to be done. And my day is done. And you say it out loud and you say, my day is done. So that there is an end and there are some 
we do need some compartmentalization with our work. I'm not saying it should be everywhere, but our work impacts our life and our life impacts our work. And so I think that moving forward, it's not going to, people are going to be working from home a lot more because there's many benefits that people are finding. Like I can turn my sourdough bread when I work from home. I go up after 50 minutes, I give it a turn. <laughs> I go back down to my office. And there are a lot of risks associated with working from home, one of which is we lose the slow time of life, the slowness of getting in the car and driving and just letting our mind wander to, to the office, hmm. or the slowness of grabbing a coworker and walking around the block to go get a sandwich. Because now everything is so compressed into one space, we've lost those opportunities to just be present and to have a little bit of mind wandering, have the default mode network do its thing, which isn't all bad, but it's, it's also something that we need to create some time boundaries around as well. I love that. Such a, such a great takeaway for, for us and the P-Supers listening is, is, mm -hmm. is the idea of deciding on a time really like that it's kind of disconnect hygiene i would call that disconnecting from work but also preparing for sleep yeah now diana i ask my guests a question i ask them for a song a song you'd like to announce your arrival in a room whether it's a virtual room or a real room just for the next few weeks and I wonder if you've, you've had a chance to think about that, whether you'd be willing to share it with us. Yes. So another sort of secret side thing about me is that I uh, love kirtan in mantra. And it's something I picked up in when I was in graduate school at that ashram. And so kirtan is, is, is singing in Sanskrit and usually singing in Sanskrit in, in groups of people. But during the pandemic, we're not doing that as much. Mm. And so... One of the things that I took on at the beginning of the pandemic was learning some mantras because I wanted something uh, that would kind of start to, I'm always kind of playing with my morning practice a little bit. I wake up early and I have a morning practice before my kids get up and it's something that is very sacred to me because once my life gets going, it's, I wear a lot of hats in this household. And so I started learning um, mantras and one of my very favorite mantras is to Lakshmi and Lakshmi traditionally in Hinduism is the goddess of wealth. So a lot of times people will give Lakshmi like put money at her feet and she sits on, she has, she sits on a lotus. She has um, lotus underneath her. And one of the things that the pandemic really taught, I think a lot of us about is a different meaning of wealth. We got clear pretty quickly about wealth. Mm, and and what is what does wealth mean to us? For some people, the wealth of, of their lives they started waking up to was their elders, and and how our elders are our part in our in being able to honor our elders and spend time with them like that. Gosh, I would give a million dollars to kiss my mom right now. You know, people would say that, or they lost their elders during this time, right? Those relationships relationships are wealth, or maybe just having more time at home is wealth, or maybe health is wealth, right? And so so in thinking about Lakshmi and sitting at the lotus feet of Lakshmi and the, and the chant that I've been, um, one of the many chants that I, that I listen to or that I practice is about um, honoring and opening to wealth and abundance and what that means more in a values-rich way. 
as opposed to the things that we are taught about what is wealth. And we're taught wealth as being something related to striving or to an education, PhD, that will, you know, that will give you, you know, what you want in life or money or beauty or a car or whatever. But I think the pandemic, and I hope that also just over the course of our lives, we, we begin to wake up to is what is true wealth for us and that that is really unique and chosen and personal. And that we all have a right to pursue that, even if people think it's kind of nutso or think it's, you know, out of the box. But this is what's important to me and um, getting really clear on that. And so I chant to Lakshmi uh, to remember that. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much. Pea Supers, that's it. Part one in the bag. Thanks to Diana for being such a fabulous guest. In part two, we'll hone in on Diana's book, co-written with Debbie Sorensen, The Act Daily Journal. If you like this episode of the podcast, could I invite you to share it with one other person? I'm really keen to spread the behavioural science and psychology with more people. Of course, a subscription, follow, rating or review are also very, very much appreciated. You can find the show notes at rossmackintosh.co.uk and that also includes the links to a few different platforms. I love to hear from you and you can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we are at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, at people.soup. On Facebook, we are at peoplesouppod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and to Alex Engelberg for his vocals and to you for listening. Look after yourselves, peace supers, and bye for now. And as a side note, could you send me a, a link to a recording of that? Because I'd love to just play a little bit of it in the background. Sure. Yeah. You'll Wonderful. love it. I think I no, will. I'll start chanting. You'll just start chanting along with it. And we'll, we'll start a Kirtan band. <laughs> <laughs>